Do you have an interest in the legacies that historical and not so historical figures leave behind? Are you curious about how to ensure family heirlooms and life lessons are passed on from generation to generation? Are you interested in developing your end of life plan to alleviate family discord and encourage generational wealth? Well, I invite you to listen to Heirloom and Legacy, a podcast that explores ancestry, heirlooms, legacy, mortality, and more. I am Angeline C. Fraser Giles, your host, and I look forward to sharing these discussions with you. So I am so excited to have today a newfound friend. He's a friend of a friend of mine, uh, Tom Sanicandro. He is the founder of SpecialNeedsTrustOnline.com, a website that provides estate planning documents for families with special needs children. He has practiced disability law for more than 20 years, including estate planning and special education. He is a leader in the rights of persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities and served in the Massachusetts legislature for 12 years, where he authored a number of groundbreaking laws empowering people with disabilities. He is the father of an adult son with Down syndrome. Tom has degrees from Suffolk University Law School, Harvard University, College of the Holy Cross, and a PhD from Brandeis University. His dissertation is entitled, The Effect of Post-Secondary Education on Employment for Individuals with intellectual disabilities. So welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. So thanks. So the first thing I want to ask you is, could you define for the listening audience, what are special needs in, in talking about preparing for special needs? Sure. Um, so special needs is... is um, language I think that developed out of education and it refers to uh, to people who have a disability generally. Um, special needs usually applies to someone who has um, an intellectual or a developmental disability. Um, like developmental disability would be something like someone on the autism spectrum um, who may be um, intellectually um, on par with everybody else or sometimes even more advanced, but the challenges of day-to-day -day living can cause them some challenges and dealing with other people can cause them some challenges. Typically, what's when I'm referring to a special needs trust, the, the reason for that is that someone as an adult, or at least when you think that this person, uh, your child, with a disability when they become an adult, are they gonna be reliant on government benefits? Because the purpose of the special needs trust is to make sure that that person can take money from you and your will and still um, get the benefit of government benefits, whether it's supplemental security income, whether it's housing, food stamps, um, Medicaid, uh, health insurance, whatever it is, you just wanna make sure that you don't make your child's life more difficult by mm -hmm. leaving them an inheritance. Mm -hmm. um, and the special needs trust is the way around that. Okay, so the reason why you would have a special needs trust over a will is to protect the interests of the child that may not be a child when the parent uh, you know, passes away. They may be an adult person that needs Social security, you know, the the social security benefits, the supplemental social security, or these other things. So it's not just having a will where you say, okay, they have you're leaving them fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever the case may be, or you're leaving them an insurance policy. Uh, you want to protect the the child or adult at that at that juncture. Sure. So what happens is, I think that if you know, I'm sure some of your listeners and have a child that has a disability that may be eligible for uh, supplemental security income or, or any type of government benefits because they have a disability. And I think a lot of folks, when people think about, they think, well, I can't give money to my child with a disability. I'll have to give it to my other children or figure something else out. They don't think about the special needs trust. 
they absolutely need to think about a special needs trust because if you, you know, you're thinking if, if uh, you know, I have four children and one child has a disability, um, if I left, if I didn't give him anything in my will, and then left, you know, the money to the other children, his share to say, well, provide for him as he gets older. Those, the other siblings may not ever have control over that money in the way that, you know, people get married, they get divorced. The the, the asset isn't going to look any different to the probate court than their own assets. Mm-hmm. Um, they could get sued for some reason, for whatever reason. So it even the, the, the sibling with the best intention um, can lose control over money that way. So the the absolute best way to provide for a child who has a disability and is going to be relying on government benefits as an adult is to create this special needs trust. Um, that's because you, they get the benefit of your inheritance, plus they get the government benefits. And the reason why you would have a special needs trust over any other particular type of trust is particularly for that purpose? It is. So the, so the trust itself says, it's sometimes referred to as a supplemental needs trust, which is probably more accurate, um, sort of in the, you know, with t- dealing with families and being a family member myself and sort of dealing with parental organizations, we refer to it as a special needs trust. And it's commonly referred to that, but it's really a supplemental needs trust. So the supplemental needs trust says the trust the money that's in the trust is only going to supplement government benefits. It's not going to supplant them. That's the magic language that's in the trust, but it's just to make sure that that person still is going to be able to benefit from whatever kind of government benefits they have. I like that supplement versus supplant. That's a good way to look at it, that it's not going to uh, take over what the person could potentially receive. Uh, benefits-wise from from the federal government. So, Tom, tell me a little bit about why you got interested in, one, law, in a state <laughs> practice specifically. <laughs> and uh, as I mentioned in your bio, you do have a son with uh, Down syndrome. So is that yeah. why you got into doing uh, estate planning? It's been a long, long process, which I, you know, you can edit this out if you want as we move ahead. Um, so originally, I, I went to law school. I, I graduated from college in uh, one of our deep recessions prior to the big recession, but it was deep. And um, I went to law school. I thought it sounded interesting to me. It wasn't a really heavy-duty thought. I thought it sounded interesting, and I thought it was a skill that I could use in life. I never really even expected to practice, but I did. Um, I was a corporate attorney for uh, actually 20 years, um, really doing just business law types of things and representing manufacturing corporations up in the Northeast. Um, And my son, as you know, has Down syndrome. And when he started school, um, trying to get him through the special education process itself was extremely challenging. Um, But when he was younger, um, the fact that I was a lawyer made the administration a little leery of me. They thought I know more than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he got older, <laughs> I realized use that really to your advantage, to learn, huh? <laughs> I really better learn about this stuff myself. So I, I really got involved in um, special education law, disability law, and really, you know, the the corporate law and business law was to me like doing puzzles all day. It was okay. The the pay was great. Um, but the disability law practice is something that really excites me and it's a passion. And that's why I'm actually still even doing this work is because it's, you know, like it's not really like work to me. It's really interesting. I feel like I'm doing a good thing. Um, but that's that's how I got into it. How I ended up creating the website was um I was actually retiring, and I thought this would be a good way to um, to give back um, in a lot of ways. And I I love um, like tinkering with the internet and programming. I did um, I did the the guts behind this website myself. 
I did all that coding and all that stuff. I did have someone help me with the front end of it. Um, but, but I thought it would be a good way to give back to families um, to do this work up in the Northeast. You can get charged like $5,000 for the documents that get produced in this, um, in this website. Um, and it, it's not rocket science. I was doing this work as a lawyer and I was doing it in a similar way. I, I used to use forms that would be actually generated through the computer. I just entered the information in. Um, the fact that the way we all use the internet now and that we're used to using it in the way we do, I thought it would be good to automate the process. Um, so the the difference between my site and like legal zoom or rocket lawyer or any of those others that exist out there is that they can talk to me personally i'm i'm the person running it i can sit down with them and typically what i found i thought it would work more i thought people would just go to the website and do it but what i found is that actually no one probably does that first they'll set up a meeting and on the website, there's a little link that says, do you want a free 10 minute meeting? They can just click on that. And typically what they do is they sit down with me and I have a conversation pretty much like we're having now about their needs, talk about their family. What is it they're looking for? Is there anything unique about their family? And then they go in and they do it after our conversation. I've had other people actually ask me to do it while we're on Zoom with them. So we actually bring up the site, we go through and do the whole thing together. Um, and then another thing that frequently happens is that after they create the documents, I'm still there to support them. So sometimes when they create the documents, they'll say, Tom, look at this. Can you take a look at this and make sure this is what I need given what my family situation is? So then I do that. So in a lot of ways, it's more not really a... Um, a site like other legal form sites, it's more like a hybrid um, sort of law firm. Um, but the reason why the, the cost is so low is that I'm intentionally trying to keep it low. Um, but the fact is that much of the work is automated. Um, okay. So it doesn't take me like to review a document that's already done that I created the form itself. So I know what's in there. It's really how do the pieces fit together? Um, so it really cuts down the work that I need to do to provide this kind of service. So let me ask you, since it is a form uh, on the website, how transferable are the forms through, throughout jurisdictions? So if you're in Massachusetts and the other person is in Nevada, let's say, how transferable are those? Because the laws are different in each state, but are they are they that significantly different when it comes to this particular type of trust? So the biggest issue that comes through this is federal law. So because it's the Social Security Administration is federal, um, most of the work is federal, and it 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 that's so that's the 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 way the trust works. Um, so you're not trying to set this up so that people get. Uh, any type of benefits on the state level or the state wherever they're from. This no, is they specifically do. is the trust though, the trust that you're doing online, are they some of them able to access some of those state benefits as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and th there's another thing, there's something that's called the uniform probate code, mm -hmm. which um well you you work in the field so you know about that. <laughs> Um, so but go ahead and states. explain it for us, for those who <laughs> yeah. don't know. So the Uniform Probate Code is that a bunch of really smart lawyers get together and judges, and they design what is the best law for a certain area. So it, like looking at the probate law, like guardianships, wills, trusts, they got together and they created a whole statute, a whole um, legal I want to say it's a statutory scheme. I don't know what the other word would be for that. Um, but essentially, it's they created the whole series of laws that relate to that and drafted them as a draft law. And that's called, they refer to that as the Uniform Probate Code. I don't know how, I think like 30 something states have adopted the Uniform mm -hmm. Probate Code. And the states that are outside that, you know, the biggest thing in a will is how many witnesses you're going to have. Um, this, Right now, I think every state is two witnesses, um, but others there's states now that you could actually not 
need any of this that you could just actually write on a piece of paper. This is sort of the belt and suspenders for every state. So it satisfies every state, even though your state may not have the same requirements, it will, this, these documents will meet your requirements. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. So uh, in terms of having all of these documents done is can you utilize or can someone go on the website? Let's say, for example, they're not necessarily dealing with a child who has a developmental disability. Let's say they're dealing with an adult who becomes disabled. Can they utilize these forms for that purpose as well? Absolutely. Absolutely, you can do that. So it, it's, it's actually for any person who has, is relying on government benefits because of a disability. Okay. So it would it would it would fit that need when you when you think about it. So a lot of times this would be typically what happens if you have a child with a disability. Um, you're thinking about that child, and that's how we originally started to talk about this and me coming on your show is you, you think about your own death and your own passing and how do you provide for your child um, and you think about that. You know, I think more strongly when you have a child with a disability that really relies on you on ways that your other children probably won't when they get older. So I think that a lot of people, young families will plan for this originally, and sometimes they'll plan for it with a child and they'll say, well, I need to do this for my child. They may find out when the child grows up that the child is much more independent and self-sufficient than they thought would happen, but you need to provide for what's happening right then. Um, and like you said, if you have an adult, uh, I just got a call actually um, from uh, a family member uh, the other day who had a cousin who had mental illness. And she's right now having challenges with um, addictions and homelessness and all this. And the family wants to provide for her and the trust that would provide for her at this point that the family wants to set up would be the exact same trust. And that's why I, I said sometimes it's referred to as a supplemental needs trust because that's exactly what it is. Okay. So this is a this would be in the same situation. It's an adult, uh, you know, an adult woman who's now look who has lots of challenges, and their family wants to support them, but they don't want to knock her off any government benefits that she may be entitled to. Right, right. So, in terms of of putting all of these various documents together, and we'll talk a little bit about the documents that you that are listed on your website. Uh, once the individual has filled out all these documents. Is that all they need to do in terms of ensuring that their loved one is protected? Do they need to have it in a certain place? Do they need to, to go to a lawyer in their jurisdiction? Like what, what do they need to do? Once they have all these documents filled out, what do they do with them? Once they fill out the documents, they, they fill out, the, they ex essentially are answering the questions online um, and then they get to, um, they, they pay for it. In uh, like a minute or two later, they get the documents emailed to them in a PDF file. And in that PDF email, as well as in the document itself, there's a link that says how you have to um, sign the will. The will is the biggest challenge because it has to have two witnesses. They have to sit there. They have to see it. The, the person who notarizes have to, sees, have to see the person the two witnesses, they have to ask them certain questions. So the link to the directions, which is actually on the website as a resource, um, it just says, it's essentially like a script for a play. You know, you say this, you say this, you say this, just to make sure it's done properly. Um, and apparently it works because people have been writing back to me and say, oh, everything went through, it was great, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, the other documents just need to be notarized, but all that information is there. Um, frequently, and I, I'm, I am going to add this, but I usually hear from the people when they do it, when they're done, when they get it notarized. Um, what they should be doing is keeping them in a, um, in a safe place and let their executor know where the document is. 
Um, I usually write that in an email. I guess that that's going to have to go into the the website somewhere. Um, so they have to do that. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's what everybody knows. Um, the only challenge I think is that um, one of the biggest things I think for people, and I've had this in my legal practice, is where people put it in a safe deposit box and they're the only person that has access. Right. right Don't right. do that. Right. I tell people that <laughs> all the time is that, oh, well, what if I just put it in the safety deposit box? I'm like, well, what happens if something happens to you and there's no access to it? Uh, I've had those cases is, and it's the a pain. bank will not let you have, they, they won't let your loved one have access no. to a, to no. a, uh, to an account unless your name is on it. So um, it, it just creates lots and lots of problems. So keep it in your house somewhere safe, somewhere safe. keep a copy um, oh, the best practice, I think, is that the it, in most states, it's called the personal representative now, or it's was referred to as the executor, executor. Mm-hmm. of the of the of the estate. The, you know, the person that you've assigned in your will to take care of it after you're after you're gone. Um, the best practice is either give them the original or give them a copy and keep the original. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my case, my daughter, she has the original. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have a copy. So, cause she's the one that's going to actually have to do something with it. So rather right. than figuring out where I put it, she already has the original. So, okay. you know, and people need to know that you need the original in order to go to the probate right. court to, to file, and, to file it. And if you don't have the original, if you can somehow prove that a copy you have is okay, you can run into real problems, but yes. that's, it's possible to work around some of these things. So you mentioned uh, the will and a trust together. To yes. have a trust, you need to have a will drawn up that re- references that, that is connected to, to the trust. In this particular situation, talk about the need for a will and the special, to, to be associated with the special needs trust. Right. So the, the you need to, when we're talking about, let's talk about the person with a disability and let's say it's your child with a disability that you're trying to provide for. Um, in the will, you can't leave anything directly to that child. So the will has to specifically say, I'm not leaving anything to this child. Anything that child shares should be going to this particular special needs trust that is identified in the will. And if you do the documents online, that's what happens. The The documents are created so that the, the will references the special needs trust that's being created at the same time. So you make sure that everything is done properly. Um, I can go into that's much a, no, more detail no, for that. But, no, that's fine. Yeah. I think that that's really helpful for people to know because um, and, and I believe it's not just with special needs trusts, right, where you would need to have a will. You need to have a, if you have any other type of trust, like there's all, there's a revocable, irrevocable, all these other different types of trust. And it really depends on your financial situation, which trust that you would need. The will references the trust. So the will has, they're, they're, they're like, accompanying documents, I think is really what I right. want to try to get across to the audience that if you have a trust, there's a will that's associated with it. And even if you like a lot of times people refer to or lawyers will tell you to get the living trust. Sometimes they refer to it as a living trust, which is a, a trust that, that puts all your assets together um, and then would distribute them outside of probate, right? That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, I don't know if that's still a popular thing, but it, it it was popular in the past. Even if you have that trust that you've put everything in that trust, you still need to make a will that says anything that didn't go into the trust, I leave under my will to go into the trust so that you make sure that everything goes in there. So it you're going to need a will. The point is you need a will no matter what you're doing with trusts. Mm-hmm. You always need a will. Okay. So let's talk about the the different forms that are on your website. Yeah. yeah so the estate planning one, it was, you know, um, it just does everything directly. So it's it says it's estate planning, but it brings you it brings you through a series of questions that says what, what the first question is: Do you want to do a will and a trust, or you just want to do the trust? And the recommendation in the questions is 
you should really do the will and the trust. You know, click this box. We're recommending you click this box for the reason we just talked about, because we need a, the will specialized to say it's going to send that child share to the trust. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that's happening. Um, so if you do, if you follow the questions, um, you're going to create the will and the trust, and that's what will be emailed to you. That one clearly will make will do everything for you all at once. Okay, so I have a question that I see here that I think we probably should talk a little bit about. When you have uh, on, under the estate plan included documents, one of the things that's listed there is a will for each spouse. So could you explain why it's necessary to have, if there's two spouses and let's say one child and one, two children and one child has the disability, why it's necessary to have a will for each spouse? So everybody needs their own will. You can't have a joint will with two people. So everybody needs their own will. And then you need to make sure that each one is leaving the property to the, we never know who's going to pass first or whether they'll pass together. Um, You just need to make sure that each will is leaving to that child with a disability. Goes directly to the trust instead Mm -hmm. of. Okay. To that child directly. And they have to be the same will. They can't be one will saying one thing and the other will saying another. They have to be reciprocal. Is that they, no, they could be different. They could be entirely okay. different. Um, okay. this, this sort of, and this is how I get into the, where people ask me questions. This was set up to be completely reciprocal. So okay. they're, they're, that's the way they work. Um, I have had people contact with me and say it was a second marriage and blah, blah, blah. And I would make those changes manually um, to the documents they create. The letter of intent, and that is super, super important. And I, we should definitely spend some time talking about the letter of intent. Um, and this probably weighs more for your audience. Um, the letter of intent is a essentially a letter describing your child um, with a disability, talks about your vision for the child after you pass. I I just did some work with a woman. Um, She's older woman and she's really concerned now about what's gonna happen. And one of the things that we did is she drafted a detailed um, letter of intent for her child that said, really stressing independence. She wanted the child to stay in the home um, and that the home not be sold. So she actually, um, and so the letter of intent really is your vision for the child, as well as a lot of information that someone can just step in. If you suddenly, you know, disappeared and nobody knew anything about this, this person who's probably an adult at this point, it would step in and say, this is the roadmap for this person. Um, what is your vision for this person's life? What is their vision? Who are their doctors? Who are, the, who are their friends? What are their phone numbers? Who are their relatives? Who are they close to? Um, it's really a comprehensive document. Um, it's really challenging to fill out, you know, because it takes a lot of work to do that. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine, if you were like gone you know, tomorrow and you have this uh, adult person who's your child with a disability, a significant disability, you want someone to be able to step in and know exactly what's going on. This is that roadmap to what that is. Um, This one is just actually, it's a free service from the website. There's no charge for this document. And it's something that probably everybody should do. Um, The way it works on the website is you just click on the link and then you enter your email and relationship or whatever and it it just emails you a document that you can fill out the letter of intent you can fill out for yourself um so that's a critically important document that everybody should do um who has a a child with a disability just to you know if you when you're talking about confidence preparing for your own leaving is that this is this is the document that would provide that 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 someone could step in at any point and know exactly what this person needs, who their support people are, 
what they do during the day, what they value, what, you know, the whole whole works. And that's, this is the document that provides that. That's a really excellent document and to just lay out all of those things, because if anyone has ever had to try to uh, plan a funeral for someone, so just imagine trying to plan a funeral for someone and you have no information, you don't know where they're in life insurance policy is, you don't know uh, who they wanted to invite to their funeral, who they didn't want to invite to the funeral, what type of music, what type of service. This is a roadmap to ensure that your loved one is protected and that they are not floundering, right? And that whoever there is there to you know, hopefully take care of them is not floundering, trying to figure out, okay, now what, what now? What do I do now? So that is uh, very important. So let's go to the next. The next is healthcare proxy. And that's a document that's unique only to Massachusetts. I don't know what other states have it. Um, so, but that's a document for um, someone to step in if you're unable to make healthcare decisions for yourself. Um, I'm sure it's called different things in different states. And so far it's only uh, this one, if you go in, it says if you, do you live in Massachusetts? If you say no, it says, well, you can't do this. But if you do, you can use a healthcare proxy. That's probably something that I can, I'll add to as time goes on with different options for folks. But from if you're in Massachusetts, it's it's a great um, it's a great place, great thing to have. And I think they're probably very similar in other states. Uh, they 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 may be called something different in in each yeah. state. But it is to just let the uh, to give someone that access that they, if something happens to you and you're incapacitated and you can't act on your behalf, then that document acts as that. Uh, the next document is a power of attorney. Um, and that again is a critically important document. Um, that document allows someone to act for you legally, um, to step into your shoes legally and do whatever needs to be done, whether it's a uh, pay bills, sell real estate, even can create a will for someone who's incapacitated. Um, that's another critically important document. And it's also important if you think the likelihood of us being needing someone to step in for us is going to happen probably long before we're ever going to pass away, right? It's, it's right. really super important like even you know as a as a baby boomer i probably still have a life expectancy of like 20 something years um i'm more likely going to need a power of attorney than i'm going to need a will in the next you know 20 years mm -hmm. at, at this and and that's the way everyone is um it's critically important to have that um just as another point um it's related to this, but if you have a power of attorney in place um, and you become ill or incapacitated in some way, you may be entitled to government benefits as well. The power of attorney allows that person to actually do the estate planning for you, even when you're not capable of doing it yourself. So that the power of attorney is the document that can fix everything you screwed up in your estate plan or didn't do. Um, so that's why it's so important. So but a lot of people um, may not necessarily want anyone to handle their, their finances. You know, if they're incapacitated, they may not want to have someone else um, mucking around, so to speak, in in their their bank account or anything. So you really want to try to find someone that you trust to be that power of attorney because that person has access to everything, depending yes. on what the, on what the form says. I mean, some forms it, it's it's limited in terms of maybe, you know, you might check off this box and maybe not another box. But they generally have access to your bank records, your four hundred one k, all of your your assets. Right, so to speak. right. You this is someone that you trust with your life, actually, right? Right. Right. Um, yeah. And usually it's a spouse. So that's usually what the what what it is. But that's that's what it is. Okay. Um, you're absolutely right. It's 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 super powerful document, but it's also that it's power. It can create a lot, fix a lot of things later on that that were left hanging. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important. It's also important to know that once a person passes away, once you die, that that document dies with you, that your mm-hmm. power of attorney is now gone. Um, just so that people are clear that, that, you know, once you're gone, it's, that's gone too. That's There's gone. no, no more power of attorney for that. Right. So while you might've had access to the bank account when the person was alive at the point that they, that they die, you'd no longer have access to that account unless you're actually a owner of the account, that your name right. is actually on the account as well. Uh, so, and that gets trickier into all of the other processes of drafting a will and why it's so important to have one. So Tom, I'll let you continue. Uh, The next one is a power of attorney for educational matters. And that comes from my background doing special education law. Um, What can happen is when your child, if you have a child with a disability, once they turn 18, they're legal adults, right? If they're not under guardianship, they're legal adults. Um, And you as a parent now, if you have a, you can have a child with a significant disability who becomes adult who's not under a guardianship. Now the school district's saying, "Well, I'm not talking to you. You have no legal right to be here as the parent. Um, we're going to go to this child." And sometimes, sometimes school districts try to convince the child that they shouldn't have any more education because it's easier for the school not to do that. Um, and that's what wow. the genesis of this document is: is to to make it clear that the parent has the right to help out during special education. So this is a document that actually would be filled out by a ch- by the student when they turn 18 or when they're a legal adult to make sure that their parent or someone can step in for them and act on their behalf. Uh, that's what this, this document is a little outside of what we're trying to do, but it was, it's something that I've seen that's simple that would be really important for for some families to be involved with and you know some of your listeners may know exactly this situation or may be coming close to the situation it's something they should just look at and say you know to help them and help their their child you know get the education they should be getting it's going to take you to a, a very similar questionnaire that that would allow you to even actually create the will even if you're just saying you want the special needs trust so it's it it sort of brings the user back to make sure that they just don't come away with a trust. Tom, I think that a lot of this information is really, really important that you just shared. And I think this is a great resource for people to just get on the website and look at these these um, all of these different forms that you have and the various resources you have, important legal terms. You have able able accounts. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Able accounts. So an able account is, um, I think you folks know about um, the college savings accounts. Um, mm-hmm. They're referred to as 529, which I think has something to do with the IRS code. Uh, they're 529 accounts. Um, an able account is for an adult with a disability that allows them allows them to create this account that they can use much the same way as a special needs account to supplement um, government benefits. Um, But the the good thing with the ABLE account is, um, one of the things we didn't get to, and I have to to sort of backtrack a bit here, is for an adult with a, a, let's say there's an adult with a significant um, intellectual or developmental disability where they're really not able to work full-time or make a living wage, they would qualify for supplemental security income under the Social Security Administration. And in most states, it pays somewhere between $750 to $800 a month. If you have more than $2,000 in assets in your in your bank account, they won't give you that $800 anymore. And you may even be bouncing off um, Medicaid or whatever else is being provided for you. And the way it works with the Social Security Administration, suppose I have, I'm the person with a disability who's collecting SSI, and I now have $2,035 in my account. Well, they're going to pay me, they're not going to really know that right away, so they're going to pay me um, my $800. 
And then probably the next month they'll pay me $800 because they're not going to figure out this extra $35 right away. And typically it takes them about six months to figure out that you had this extra $35. So in those six months, they paid me $4,800, right? Um, six mm-hmm. times 800. So they paid me that much money. Mm-hmm. Now they figured out that I had this $35, $2,035. So now they say, oh, you have to pay me back $4,800 <laughs> for the $35 over. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the big deal. That's why we need the special needs trust or the supplemental uh, income trust. It's that's why we need it because that's what happens. Um, so now I've forgotten the exact way we started on this. No, we were <laughs> we were talking about the the last tab, and you you were talking about the uh, the actual trust document. But I had oh, a question. Oh, the, the for able you. account. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Account. So let's say there's a family that doesn't have resources, right? They don't have a large bank account. They want to create a will and a trust. How do how is the trust then funded if they don't have a lot of resources? Let's say they don't have a 401k, maybe they have a really small life insurance policy, or let's say they don't have an insurance policy at all. Maybe it's just a bank account, because there are a lot of people in that situation, right? That don't have that don't have a history of, of working where they have a 401k or never got a life insurance policy because of the expense or for whatever reason. So how was a trust then funded? So what you do um, is that, and this is one of the tricks that we go into too, is that, that everything has to go into the trust. So if, even if you had a 401k or life insurance policy, first off, it can't be left to the child directly. It has to go into the trust. It has to be left to the trust. So if you're working and you have a retirement program, you got to get in touch with that people and say the beneficiary may be my, you know, these three children of mine, but this fourth child and their share would go to this trust or the special needs trust that's named. The same with the insurance policies, anything like that. If you don't have a lot of money and you're planning for, and you have a child who has a disability that you want to make sure they're provided for, the easiest way to do that is with a life insurance policy. Um, and you can, wherever you can get a life insurance policy, you know, at low cost, and I know you can get them online and all, um, but you got to make sure that the life, the beneficiary of that life insurance policy is the special needs trust and not the child directly. Um, another um, idea for folks that may have tight financial situation is that if you're in a, um, if you're married, you can get a joint um, life insurance policy that pays only after the death of the second person. So that can really save you a lot of money. Um, but that's something to look at. Now it's called, I think it's called a joint life insurance policy. But if you talk to any insurance folk, any insurance person, they'll be able to help you out with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that would be the way to, pro- if you don't have a lot of money, you want to provide for your child to make sure that they have resources. The best thing to do is to buy a life insurance policy. And, you know, you can shop around online and find something I'm sure that's affordable to, to do that. Okay. That's good information because I know there are a lot of people out there that this, they don't, they don't want to do a will or a trust because they feel as if they don't have an estate. I talk to people all the time. Well, I don't have anything. <laughs> and you have to say, well, you have, there's something that you have. You have things, uh, and and if you've worked, you might have a life insurance policy. You just don't even know. I found, I spoke to someone who had, a, uh, whose uh, mother died, and they had a life insurance policy, and they didn't know that they had a life insurance policy. And when they finally found it, the person didn't have a beneficiary listed on life insurance policy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's really good information to know that, and just different things that you can do to make sure that you protect your loved one. So Tom, let, let me get anything... back to one. Yeah. yeah go back. I remembered what, where I lost my train of thought before we were talking about the able account. And that's when I had to backtrack to really give you the background and the information about SSI and how it's counted. And when you have more than $2,000, the, the able account is an account you can, you'd set up. Um, 
every state has them now. And if your state doesn't have them, you can go to a state that does have them. I think I originally, first we did one, I think it was actually in Virginia because Massachusetts was a little slow on the uptick and they didn't have ABLE accounts. So you can create the ABLE account in any state, no matter where, where, you, where you live. Um, and if you Google ABLE account, you'll find lots of them. In Massachusetts, it's Fidelity Investments that handles it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in whatever state, if you Google it for your state or if you find a great plan, um, it doesn't even have to be in your state. But the, the beauty of the ABLE account is, one is that it's, there's no setup, there's no trust, there's nothing. You just call you know your whoever's providing the ABLE account, which is a 529 account. Whatever that provider is, you just um, set it up. Um, but in the ABLE account, you can have up to $100,000 and it doesn't affect um, SSI. So before, when I talked about the $2,000, right. you can have 100,000 in an ABLE account and have like $1,000 in your checking account and you're still gonna qualify for SSI. So what's the, what's the threshold if, if it's a regular account, the threshold is at thirty five dollars that you no, were it referring does, to. No, it's it's it, the the what is it's uh, two thousand dollars is the threshold. So you can have up to two thousand dollars, but if you go over by a penny, they're going to ask for your eight hundred dollars back every eight hundred dollars they gave you. So it's very tricky to be stay under that two thousand dollars. Okay, so the threshold for a regular bank account is two thousand. And right. with an ABLE account, there is no threshold or the, it's, it's $100,000. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Got that clear now. 2000 yep. in yep. a regular account. And if you open up an ABLE account, it's $100,000. Right. Right. Okay. So you could technically put money in that account for your loved one. You and that's protected up- from, right. that, that protects right. them to ensure that they can get federal benefits. Right. Right. So that's a way for for folks to do it. If they didn't want to set up a special needs trust, they can just create the ABLE account. Um, And then, you know, one of the the other issues for people to think about, not everybody's in the situation, but you may have the child may have a grandparent that's going to leave them lots of money. You got to make sure that they don't leave the child with a disability. You know, a lot of money in a a will. Right, right, right. Um, so that's something to watch out for that I'm seeing more and more now. They say, well, you know, my my parent is going to leave this money to my child. And they're like, no, don't do that. No, you got to make sure you take care of that. Right. Uh, but they right. can also give donate or uh, give money to the ABLE account, too. That was the point I was trying to make. OK. But they can they can only add, um, I think it's $14,000 per year to the ABLE account. Oh, so even more restrictions. OK. Yeah, so- $200,000 total and 14,000 per year. You can put into the ABLE account, right? So if a grandparent leaves money, let's say in their, in their life insurance, they list the dis, the child with a disability in as a beneficiary, then can they make stipulations that that those funds go directly to the ABLE account or they can't do that? So I don't know the answer to that question. That's what okay. I haven't looked at yet, but that's a, that is a very good question. So it um, may be worth it if you have an insurance policy to make sure that you ask your insurance agent that you, when this money is distributed, you want to make sure that it's distributed to that account. But I think what happens is they just get a check that the beneficiaries would just get a check so that the child with a disability would have to put it in the ABLE account or whoever their representative right. would have to put it in the ABLE account. So but then do yeah. they have to do they have to report that to Yes. Well, there's not taxes paid on if you get if you're a beneficiary right. of life insurance, there's not taxes paid on it. So but you have to report you have that to report to it as Social income, Security Administration. As income, yeah. Huh. So it, the All best right. practice is to create the um, special needs trust mm-hmm. and that anybody who's giving gifts and any grandparent or any other relatives that's going to give, leave something to the child to make sure it goes to the special needs trust. 
that's the absolute best practice right. to make sure you do that. Uh, right. The ABLE account, I was just throwing in there to give let folks know that there was this other vehicle, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, that that's more if you're going to like, if you're just going to give money and like a one-term deal or whatever, right. and it's easier to set up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the by far the best practice is to have the special needs trust so that things can be dumped in it at any time. Right. And we know they're protected. There's no limitation on the special needs trust. You could literally have millions of dollars in the special needs trust and still qualify for SSI. Okay, good to know. So, to so know. that's why it's a good practice to use the special needs trust because it doesn't have all those other pieces to it or right. other restrictions. So is there anything else that you want to leave the audience with today that you think that they should they should know? Well, I think one of the, I think that to know that they can, if they're, you know, planning for their child with special needs, that they can do, take all these things to make sure that everything is in place, that they can be confident as they go through life and that they know when they pass, that they've done the letter of intent, that they've done their wills, that they have the special needs trust, that they have everything in place to make sure that that child's life continues to be a great life for that person. And and the documents that they get from this website can absolutely do that. So that's the the biggest thing to know that they can confidently leave this life and leave for their child with special needs, everything in place that that child needs for the child's vision and for their own vision for their child. Okay, that sounds like excellent advice. And definitely information that I think a lot of families probably don't always think about, but it's important to know they just, I think a lot of people think, well, whoever's left will just take care of these things. So you've put this all in a comprehensive format and and easy to follow format as easy as it can be when you have to fill out a bunch of forms and documents. So please tell tell us how we can access all of the, access your website and all the forms. So the website is specialneedstrustsonline.com. And if you don't even remember that, actually I've been working with Google. And so if you just type in special needs trusts online, the number one spot is this website. So after you get through the ads, usually there's some ads at the top of Google, Mm -hmm. but the number one non-paying website is this one. So just specialneedstrustsonline.com or just type in special needs trusts online and you'll come out to the, to the website. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Tom Sanicandro, I think we can also find you on some social media platforms. So if you just totally yep. get confused, yeah. <laughs> you can also look up Tom Sanicandro and it's S-A-N-N-I-C-A-N-D-R-O. Great. Thank you again so much and have a good night. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed talking to you and sharing this information with you and your audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Heirloom and Legacy. If you want to learn more about the work of Heirloom Estate and Legacy Preservation, you can find us at LegacyPreservation.life, on Instagram at Legacy Preservation, and on Twitter at Heirloom Legacy. Many thanks to my exceptional executive assistant, Queen Karen Garrison, aka Mommy Activist, and my outstanding engineer, Jonathan Reed. Thank you again for choosing Heirloom and Legacy. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about us.